This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Many years ago, I dated a man that was incredibly handsome. Kevin was so good-looking that I often felt dull in comparison and tried to compensate by wearing especially pretty clothes and taking extra care with my makeup and my accessories. One day, after several months together, we went strolling through Soho, holding hands and window shopping. After several hours of bumming around, we stopped in a sidewalk cafe. We sat outside in the sunlight and watched as people went by and wondered out loud what their lives were about, who they lived with, what kind of music they listened to, what their names were. As we were about to get the check, a very tall, pale, heavyset woman walked by in Birkenstocks and cargo pants. Her hair was unbrushed, she didn't have on a trace of makeup, and she was wearing a gigantic, slightly dirty, fleecy jacket. When she saw us, her eyes lit up and she rushed over. Kevin jumped up and ran to her and they hugged and kissed hello. He brought her over to meet me and introduced us. She was Kathleen, his ex-girlfriend. She held out her hand warmly and graciously said hello. I kept my shock at bay, but after she walked away, I told Kevin that meeting Kathleen had surprised me. He asked why. I replied that when he had first told me about her, I just assumed that she was stunningly beautiful. I thought she must be, given how good-looking he was. When I told Kevin this, he looked completely astonished. And I'll never forget what he said next. He told me that she was stunningly beautiful, that she had one of the most incredible faces he had ever seen. In fact, he thought she was gorgeous. I was shocked and suddenly felt like a silly little Cupid doll in comparison. Beauty is a strangely obsessive concept in our culture. We live in a day and age wherein there are more people undergoing plastic surgery than ever before, and there is no part of the body that can't be refurbished and remade. I read recently there is a reconstructive service now available called Vaginal Rejuvenation, and I will never forget seeing an episode in the UK of an extreme makeover show that featured anal bleaching. I think I can safely say that we have reached a tipping point in our efforts to recreate who we are by recreating how we look. Beauty is also an incredibly subjective experience. From a cultural perspective, what is beautiful in one culture may be considered ugly or even grotesque in another. Last week, I watched the movie Memoirs of a Geisha with my dear friend Cheryl Swanson. Cheryl is a brand strategist, a trend forecaster, a color analyst, and a design consultant. We watched the film together and observed a woman's journey in becoming a geisha, which actually means artist in Japan. We were struck by what was considered beautiful in the Japanese culture at that time. White painted faces, red stained lips, charcoal darkened eyebrows, tabby socks and gita sandals. 
Sexy was the briefest glance of a naked wrist. We couldn't help compare this to what is considered conventionally beautiful in American culture today. The modern-day Daisy May Barbie doll looks of a Jessica Simpson or the pornographic version of the same embodied by Pamela Anderson. Cheryl and I could not find one modicum of beauty in either woman, and we even shook our heads in wonder as we pondered how, A, George Bush could even consider inviting Jessica Simpson to the White House, and B, if she even knew what the word politicizing meant. After all, this is the same woman who thought that the chicken of the sea tuna brand was chicken. Then again, George Bush did think that he was really going to find weapons of mass destruction. So maybe these two are perfectly suited to each other after all. Every culture has its own preconceived parameters in place for what a woman should look like. Many Islamic women are restricted to wearing burqa. Indian women adorn their saris in their beautiful bindi. The Zoe tribe in Africa have wood planks put through their bottom lip when they become teenagers. And of course, Americans make their breasts bigger, their thighs, noses, and tummies smaller, their nails colorful, and their hair blonde. All in name of what? Social confidence? Peer approval? A sense of belonging? Now more than ever, the idea of what is aesthetically enviable has changed. It was only a few years ago that urban kids in Manhattan were shooting each other over a pair of Levi's. Now that same pair of jeans is featured on a business magazine accompanied by the headline, How Levi's Trashed a Great American Brand. We now live in a media age wherein what we engage with or utilize in order to feel beautiful changes in milliseconds. Last week, as I was racing through an airport, I saw a very pretty little girl, maybe eight or nine years old. She was walking towards me, carrying her luggage, and I could see a small doll head bobbing out of the backpack she was carrying behind her. Both the girl and the doll had the exact same hair color, a flaxen blonde. I was struck by the identical color and hairstyle. Both doll and girl had a swinging ponytail, and I couldn't help but slow down to look both at the girl in front of me and, as she passed me by, the doll bobbing behind her. When I got a good look at the doll, I realized it was a carbon copy of the real girl, just a smaller doll version. This made me feel a bit odd, this forced mimicry of sorts, when suddenly it made me smile. It occurred to me that women have tried to look like Barbie dolls for decades, and now a girl had a doll that was made to look like her. This reversal of roles felt empowering, and I hoped that this exchange of aesthetics could extend beyond pretty little girls and include every type of beauty, the conventional, the unconventional, the hidden, the incongruous, the subjective. Today I want to feel optimistic that maybe one day anyone who wants to feel beautiful can, and that beauty will be measured by the virtue of who we are rather than what we look like. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My guest this lovely Friday afternoon is the designer, art director, and author, Peter Buchanan-Smith. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you just a little bit more about him. Peter Buchanan-Smith was born in Canada and now lives in New York City. He received his Master's of Fine Arts from the School of Visual Arts. 
He has worked for Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux at the New York Ti- and at the New York Times, where he was the art director of the Opinions and Editorial page. His first book, Spec, was published in 2001, and he has since published, designed, and packaged many other successful projects. In 2005, he became the creative director at Paper Magazine. He won a Grammy Award for his design of Wilco's album, A Ghost is Born, became the consulting creative director to Isaac Mizrahi, and formed his own design studio. Welcome, Peter. Thank, Thank you, you for being on Design Matters with me. Thank you. Thank you. So, <coughs> your father was a professor of animal science. Yes. How did that influence you? <coughs> um, good question. Uh, how did it influence my life growing up or my design? or? Well, both. First of all, did you have a lot of pets? Oh, yeah. We always had... We always had um, you know, a series of pets, ones that had sort of wandered, wandered onto the farm that we lived, or you know, cows that we had, or horses, or chickens, or mm-hmm. you know, so you grew up on a farm. Grew up on a farm, a small farm in uh, rural Ontario, Canada, mm-hmm. about an hour from Toronto. And uh, one of the, you know, I think that it, it, it was probably not my father's career, but more, you know, the farm for him was was his sort of creative outlet. And it was a chance for him to come home and, you know, sort of apply some of the, the things that he was working on um, or just to sort of like, you know, vent, get things out of his system. Mm-hmm. And being, growing up as a kid on a farm by yourself with, where you don't have like a neighbor, you know, five steps away that you can just go to the mall with or whatever, you know, you have a lot of time on your own, with better or worse. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that time was spent doing, you know, very creative things, I think. You know, they were, at the time, probably very destructive. Destructive in what way? Oh, like, I remember I had a, um, uh, I had a babysitter who, t- who actually, I kid you not, taught me how to build a Molotov cocktail. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that go over? <laughs> that went, you know, my parents were away, so it, the fire was quickly put out. But it was just, you know, it wasn't, oh we, we didn't destroy anything. It was just you know, a skill that I haven't luckily had to use since then. Fortunately. Um, and, uh, but then there was a lot, of, a lot of building and then destroying, I think. It, you know, it was like, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd spend weeks on end making a fort somewhere, and then once it was done, you know, you'd, you'd light it on fire or you'd just tear it down because... You know, you sort of got bored of that. You know, once it was done, then what? You know, you weren't going to really. There's no fun just sitting in it and hanging out, and you know, you know, it was it was more about the act and, and going out somewhere and coming up with a plan of like, you know, I'm going to go, you know, try and dig a, a 10 foot tunnel through the ground somewhere, and you wow. know, quickly realizing that, you know, you know, it's very hard to dig a tunnel, you know, six inches into the ground, on <laughs> 10 feet. But uh, yeah, so that was that was sort of. Um, how the you know the farm life and my father probably influenced me. Now I read in in your wonderful profile in this month's print magazine that when you were growing up in Canada, you actually planned to join the army. Yes. Really. Yeah. Why? I had I had always wanted to be in the army. Um, the Canadian yeah. army. No, no, it was the British army. Oh, okay. My father is Scottish, and he was the the third generation or second third second generation of um, Buchanan Smiths, who had been part of this small regiment in the northeast of Scotland called the Gordon Highlanders. And it was just this thing that, you know, I grew up in. My father's not an army man by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, but I had sort of, you know, I had cousins who were, who were part of this and uncles and my grandfather. And they all sort of went off to various parts of the world in their kilts and, 
you know, marched around and did lots of exciting, you know, adventure training and climbing and, you know, skiing, all this sort of thing. And, and it just seemed, you know, as, funnily enough, when I was really young, which was during the time of the, the sort of the height of the, the crisis in Northern Ireland, there was, that was the only thing I wanted to do was go to Northern Ireland and fight. Really? So, but you did yeah. end up living in Ireland for a while. Uh, yeah, that was yeah many years later, but not okay. nor, not in Northern Ireland. I lived in the south of Ireland. So, what made you decide not to do that? Not to not to join the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the last minute, I got cold feet. Um, it had been this it'd purely been a romantic sort of dream of mine, and it was just it, there was no there was no substance to it. It was really just this thing that I, I had lived for 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 so many years, and then I moved to Scotland, and then went through all my tests and slowly started to realize that I just hated it, you know. And, really? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was no way that, you know, I also had a, a, an aunt at the time who, who, who helped to talk me out of it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I, I never did that, obviously. Yeah, I think it's so interesting when you have a picture of what you think your life is going to be like or what you think you should be doing, and then when it's right there in front of you, you suddenly have this realization or epiphany or change of heart that somehow yeah. just doesn't seem to work with the direction that the rest of your exactly. life should go in. Yeah, yeah, when you really have to make that decision. Yeah, I, 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 I've had that happen a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to take a break, okay. unfortunately, but I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely designer Peter Buchanan-Smith. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Lots more to talk about. Please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Daryl and Reith of Campbell Soup Company, and I'm excited to invite you to the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April in New York City. Join me in discussing the power of research and design as they come together in a strategic huddle to drive the Campbell's Chunky brand into the end zone. Plus, hear from design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philip Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, who will discuss how synergistic strategy and design drive brand innovation, consumer loyalty, and profitability. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters, and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Rise to the challenge. See you in New York City on April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria. Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the Bottom line for business talk, Voice America Business. Achieve total wealth management. 
Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Good news, three teenies can time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer Peter Buchanan-Smith. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Peter, now's the time to call. Our phone lines are open. The number is 1-866-233-7861. So, Peter, before the break, we were talking about your, your background and mm-hmm. almost getting going to the Army and being mm-hmm. influenced by a father who was a professor of animal science. Yeah. Um, well, my mother was also very influential. In what way? Tell us. Well, she was, she was um, uh, an amazing um, uh, fabric Embroiderer. Wow. Um, yeah, she worked wonders with with a thread and needle. And is that what she did for a living? No, she was always a mom, but she did just you know sort of beautiful tapestries for oh. for the, the home and for other you know friends and things. Yeah. So was she your first creative influence? Yes, definitely. So how definitely. did you know? When did you know that you wanted to be a designer? I knew that I really wanted to be a designer. I'd always thought that I wanted to be a publisher of some kind, mm-hmm. and and I know you know I, until. I left Canada, I had really no, you know, direct publishing, you know, experience. And so I went to this program, the Radcliffe Publishing Course in, at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And I did that first summer and realized that it was sort of my, my, my mind was open to, uh, at the time, people like, um, you know, the Chip, Chip Kids and Barbara DeWild and, and um, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on, you know, um, Michael Ian Kay. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these people were, were you know, re- they were revolutionizing the cover book jacket world, yes. and that's what I wanted to do: was become a, a book jacket designer. So I, so I went to FS Frost Rouse and Drew, and funnily enough, Rodrigo Corral was working there as a uh, as an assistant to Michael Ian Kay, and then I became an assistant to the head of production. Mm-hmm. So I just started out as a lowly like sort of production person, and uh, occasionally got a, got a chance to you know they would throw me the odd bone, and it could be like a you know, redesign the the back cover of a of a of a book that's just gone out of print or something, or the title page of, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know I don't know, you know, a book of poetry or something. It wasn't, you know, or, or stri- you know, at that time we weren't even working on computers. It was mm-hmm. stripping little pieces of type in and out, and um, and uh, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, we <laughs> talked about when you knew you were going to be a designer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm, uh, yeah, I've already gone past that now. So <laughs> So the, well, then, you know, working, so I know I actually I haven't. I mean, at FSG, Frost, Ross, and Drew, I, that's when I really realized, working in that world, I wanted to be a book jacket designer. And um, I wasn't, it was sort of, there was just too many pe- great people in at, in the, that world. At well, that you were point. there at that perfect moment. Exactly, time. exactly. Yeah. But it was going to take more than just sort of, I didn't, I was too impatient to sort of sit around and imprint, apprentice with someone for, 
you know, or, or be someone's assistant for, you know, five or six years, whatever it would take. Um, so then that's when I, I took the big leap and, and, uh, and decided to, to join or applied to Steve Heller's um, Masters of Design program at School of Visual Art, which was actually the first. It hadn't been offered until I, I joined. So I was one of, like, ten guinea pigs that or, or 15 guinea pigs that started uh, that, kicked that, that program off. Well, you seem to um, hit the jackpot because obviously your first, your graduate thesis was published and turned to, into an award-winning book, the book Spec, a curious collection of uncommon things. Um, that must have been a rather heady experience for you, a newly minted graduate, to have a, a book. Yeah. Your thesis turned yeah. into a, a, a really successful yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was absolutely flabbergasted when I, 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 I took it to, originally I took it to Michael Beirut, uh, and it was supposed to be a journal, a monthly or, or quarterly journal that would just be about the theme, the theme which the theme would always be uh, about the, the every day, which, funnily enough, it seems like Found Magazine has sort of like filled that, you know, that niche, which I'm really thankful for because they do a great job. But I took it to Michael and, and just to get some sense of like how I get paper, and I was thinking of funding all of this myself, and I was like, you know, where can I get paper sponsorship? He said, well, you should just, you should take this to Princeton Architectural Press and see what they think, just as far as maybe they'll publish it as a journal. And now, now, you say you just, you know, you took it to Michael, you know, like anybody, you know, no. how, did, what, okay. how did you yeah, get yeah, to no. Michael Beirut? That's, at a very good, that's a very good question. Um, well, it was all, it was really all through my connections at the master's program, mm -hmm. and um, uh, which is one of the great things about it, is that it, it, it provided so many uh, wonderful opportunities uh, and one of which was, you know, um, th the connections that all of the all of our instructors had, and, and especially the great uh, uh, Steve Heller. And of so, course. so uh, Steve was very supportive of, of this project, and you know, he was the one who who, who opened the door to Michael for me. Um, and so, I, I brought this thing to Princeton, and you know, with no idea of what a book proposal was, or I just walked into their office with this this prototype, it was my master's thesis, and they, they took one look at it, and they're like, we love this idea, but it's not a book, and we don't do journals, so why don't you come back in a couple of weeks with a book proposal? And so I sat down, and, and, you know, what that meant really was just to flush out more ideas, to really, like, you know, I had, my, my, my prototype was about 60 pages, mm -hmm. and, you know, for a book, you know, I really wanted to, this to be something that was, you know, over 200 pages. Now, for our listeners, I'm sitting in front of this magnificent tome. Tell us, tell some of the listeners what the book is about in case they are the not book, familiar with yeah, it. Yeah, the book is simply, um, it, the original, the original subtitle that I want, or tagline that I wanted was, uh, The Uncommon Beauty of Common Things, which is something that, that, uh, Charles Eames had actually, uh, I, I, he, it was his quote. And, um, the, it, that is really what it is in, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. But uh, the actual book itself is, um, that's the theme. The book itself is a, uh, a group of, you know, crazy people who are just make, you know, who've made wonderful things that I either would go to them and say, you know, do you want to go <clears throat> go sit on, on every single subway line in New York and try, and try and draw a straight line? And so I sent someone to do that, and then they came back with all these, like, wobbly lines, which were sort of like illustrations of the New York, the whole New York City subway system. And their journey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or we, uh, we sent someone off, we sent a blind man off to take, to do a photo essay. Um, and then that's sort of like the main part of the book. And then there was a, p a book within the book, which is this repository in the middle, 
which is really just collections of mm-hmm. of people's people's thing, weird things, weird and wonderful things that that people collected, um, like cat whiskers or lost animal signs. And my favorite is is the first one, which is by this guy Eddie Simon in Philadelphia, who collected earth, air, and water from all over the world. And the catch here is that he never left really the state of Pennsylvania. But he worked as a barber in close to some colleges in Philadelphia, and a friend of his, one or, or, or one of his clients, came in one, one day and brought him the typical you know tacky tr- tourist souvenir from Florida, of like you know a bottle of sand from Daytona Beach or whatever. And he put that up on his shelf, and then you know a month later or something, someone else brought in something, and then this this collection, you know, ended up growing into this work of total work of art you know uh that's something that even like marcel duchamp would be you know envious of mm-hmm. and you know it was it was really like a uh it was mind-blowing i went to see it it was all kept in his basement but he would have you know air from mia mia and he would have fo- smog from london and, <laughs> oh, so you know and it was it was meticulously kept in in all different sorts of vials and bottles and he would typewrite you know the labels for each one and Really, really, just sort of mind blowing. Yeah, it's an it's an amazing part of the book. Yeah. Um, Peter, we have a caller, Gregory. Thank oh. you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Peter. Hi. Um, my question is, how is it different um, designing, for example, when you approach designing a book cover, um, to approaching dealing with a celebrity like Isaac and 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 um, conceptually designing for him? How is that different? Well. It's a good question. I mean, I think like designing for someone like Isaac is it's much more <coughs> of a relationship and and um, and, a, and a very direct and sort of immediate one. Uh, whereas, and it, it's sort of like understanding Isaac and, and and who he personally is because that's so much of you know in his ca- in his case, thankfully, that's so much of his of what he creates is is him and it's and a, and a real genuine outgrowth of of, of him. And I think like a book cover <coughs> is more detached in, 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 in that it's not like I sit, you know, you ever sit down with the author and t- get to talk to them about their, why they decided to ever write their book or even, you don't even get to really sit down with, with the editor who commissioned the book or, you know, so on and so forth. And sometimes not even the art director who's commissioned you to, to design it. So it's more solitary and, and both I think have their, you know, their, their, um, their benefits. Do you ever feel gypped somehow by not being able to talk to an author or uh, um, an editor? Yeah, 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 definitely. Now, now I definitely do. I mean, I don't think that I, I'm not really uh, that interested in just the way my career's gone. I'm not as interested in, in doing book jackets and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm really, I really thrive for that uh, that one-on-one contact because I think that. It is. It just creates. It just yields a better, much better product in in the end. And it's so, you know, life is so much more interesting to to have that sort of, to be in in um, it really in the mix with everyone. You know, from the author to the to the, to Isaac or to whoever it is that is is behind this thing. You sort of. It's it's a great thing to aspire to to be part of that. Right. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you for calling, Gregory. I, I mean, I always find that the very best relationships with clients are wherein you can get into their head, wherein you can Definitely. live their life, see the world from their eyes, and yeah. then open their eyes to maybe a new way of seeing what they have in front of them. Yeah, exactly. And I find it very exactly. difficult to work in any in any discipline where you're not interacting 
really deeply with the client that you're working with. Yeah. On no matter what, no matter what yeah. platform it is, whether it's yeah. packaging or book jacket. It's like being married, and like you know, it's like a long distance relationship. Otherwise, you know, it's so great to have that. You have to be right there next to each other. Yeah, going I mean, through I think it's it the trust. It's the yeah. trust that, that you're yeah. able to, to share together. And, and having, a, having a client or, or whoever you're working for who really wants that is such a great and positive sign because it means that they, they value design enough that they want to be there with you and they want, they want you, you know, they're not, they're not just sort of, you know, it's not like, um, you know, your mechanic or something where you just right. drop your car off. You know, right. it's like you don't just drop your manuscript off. You know, you want... You, they want they want you they want you to be a part of that yeah I think that whenever a client considers you a, a vendor and calls you as such yeah. that you know yeah. that this isn't necessarily no, exactly. the, the you know dream relationship exactly. that you're going to be able to create you know masterful work yeah masterful work for well it's time for another break okay. um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business I'm your host Debbie Millman and my guest today is the designer Peter Buchanan Smith. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindbergh from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. Fuse is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention design and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in April. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding a business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. You work hard and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune into Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. 
Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Hi, from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the designer, Peter. This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Many years ago, I dated a man that was incredibly handsome. Kevin was so good-looking that I often felt dull in comparison and tried to compensate by wearing especially pretty clothes and taking extra care with my makeup and my accessories. One day, after several months together, we went strolling through Soho, holding hands and window shopping. After several hours of bumming around, we stopped in a sidewalk cafe. We sat outside in the sunlight and watched as people went by and wondered out loud what their lives were about, who they lived with, what kind of music they listened to, what their names were. As we were about to get the check, a very tall, pale, heavy-set woman walked by in Birkenstocks and cargo pants. Her hair was unbrushed, she didn't have on a trace of makeup, and she was wearing a gigantic, slightly dirty, fleecy jacket. When she saw us, her eyes lit up and she rushed over. Kevin jumped up and ran to her, and they hugged and kissed hello. He brought her over to meet me and introduced us. She was Kathleen, his ex-girlfriend. She yelled at her hand warmly and graciously said hello. I kept my shock at bay, but after she walked away, I told Kevin that meeting Kathleen had surprised me. He asked why. I replied that when he had first told me about her, I just assumed that she was stunningly beautiful. I thought she must be, given how good-looking he was. When I told Kevin this, he looked completely astonished, and I'll never forget what he said next. He told me that she was stunningly beautiful, that she had one of the most incredible faces he had ever seen. In fact, he thought she was gorgeous. I was shocked and suddenly felt like a silly little Cupid doll in comparison. Beauty is a strangely obsessive concept in our culture. We live in a day and age wherein there are more people undergoing plastic surgery than ever before and there is no part of the body that can't be refurbished and remade. I read recently there is a reconstructive service now available called Vaginal Rejuvenation, and I will never forget seeing an episode in the UK of an extreme makeover show that featured anal bleaching. 
I think I can safely say that we have reached a tipping point in our efforts to recreate who we are by recreating how we look. Beauty is also an incredibly subjective experience. From a cultural perspective, what is beautiful in one culture may be considered ugly or even grotesque in another. Last week, I watched the movie Memoirs of a Geisha with my dear friend Cheryl Swanson. Cheryl is a brand strategist, a trend forecaster, a color analyst, and a design consultant. We watched the film together and observed a woman's journey in becoming a geisha, which actually means artist in Japan. We were struck by what was considered beautiful in the Japanese culture at that time. White painted faces, red stained lips, charcoal darkened eyebrows, tabby socks and gita sandals. Sexy was the briefest glance of a naked wrist. We couldn't help compare this to what is considered conventionally beautiful in American culture today. The modern day Daisy May Barbie doll looks of a Jessica Simpson or the pornographic version of the same embodied by Pamela Anderson. Cheryl and I could not find one modicum of beauty in either woman and we even shook our heads in wonder as we pondered how A, George Bush could even consider inviting Jessica Simpson to the White House, and B, if she even knew what the word politicizing meant. After all, this is the same woman who thought that the chicken of the sea tuna brand was chicken. Then again, George Bush did think that he was really going to find weapons of mass destruction. So maybe these two are perfectly suited to each other after all. Every culture has its own preconceived parameters in place for what a woman should look like. Many Islamic women are restricted to wearing burqa. Indian women adorn their saris in their beautiful bindi. The Zoe tribe in Africa have wood planks put through their bottom lip when they become teenagers. And of course, Americans make their breasts bigger, their thighs, noses, and tummies smaller, their nails colorful, and their hair blonde. All in name of what? Social confidence? Peer approval? A sense of belonging? Now more than ever, the idea of what is aesthetically enviable has changed. It was only a few years ago that urban kids in Manhattan were shooting each other over a pair of Levi's. Now that same pair of jeans is featured on a business magazine accompanied by the headline, How Levi's Trashed a Great American Brand. We now live in a media age wherein what we engage with or utilize in order to feel beautiful changes in milliseconds. Last week, as I was racing through an airport, I saw a very pretty little girl, maybe eight or nine years old. She was walking towards me, carrying her luggage, and I could see a small doll head bobbing out of the backpack she was carrying behind her. Both the girl and the doll had the exact same hair color, a flaxen blonde. I was struck by the identical color and hairstyle, both doll and girl had a swinging ponytail, and I couldn't help but slow down to look both at the girl in front of me and, as she passed me by, the doll bobbing behind her. When I got a good look at the doll, I realized it was a carbon copy of the real girl, just a smaller doll version. This made me feel a bit odd, this forced mimicry of sorts, when suddenly it made me smile. It occurred to me that women have tried to look like Barbie dolls for decades, and now a girl had a doll that was made to look like her.
This reversal of roles felt empowering, and I hoped that this exchange of aesthetics could extend beyond pretty little girls and include every type of beauty, the conventional, the unconventional, the hidden, the incongruous, the subjective. Today I want to feel optimistic that maybe one day anyone who wants to feel beautiful can, and that beauty will be measured by the virtue of who we are rather than what we look like. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My guest this lovely Friday afternoon is the designer, art director, and author, Peter Buchanan-Smith. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you just a little bit more about him. Peter Buchanan-Smith was born in Canada and now lives in New York City. He received his Master's of Fine Arts from the School of Visual Arts. He has worked for Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud and at the New York Times, where he was the art director of the Opinions and Editorial page. His first book, Spec, was published in 2001, and he has since published, designed, and packaged many other successful projects. In 2005, he became the creative director at Paper Magazine. He won a Grammy Award for his design of Wilco's album, A Ghost is Born, became the consulting creative director to Isaac Mizrahi, and formed his own design studio. Welcome, Peter. Thank, Thank you, you for being on Design Matters with me. Thank you. Thank you. So, <coughs> your father was a professor of animal science. Yes. How did that influence you? <coughs> um, good question. Uh, how did it influence my life growing up or my design? or? Well, both. First of all, did you have a lot of pets? Oh, yeah. We always had... We always had um, you know, a series of pets, ones that had sort of wandered, wandered onto the farm that we lived, or you know, cows that we had, or horses, or chickens, or mm -hmm. you know. So you grew up on a farm. Grew up on a farm, a small farm in uh, rural Ontario, Canada, mm -hmm. about an hour from Toronto. And uh, one of the, you know, I think that it, it, it was probably not my father's career, but more, you know, the farm for him was was his sort of creative outlet. And it was a chance for him to come home and, you know, sort of apply some of the, the things that he was working on um, or just to sort of like, you know, vent, get things out of his system. Mm -hmm. And being, growing up as a kid on a farm by yourself with, where you don't have like a neighbor, you know, five steps away that you can just go to the mall with or whatever, you know, you have a lot of time on your own, better or worse. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that time was spent doing, you know, very creative things, I think. You know, they were, at the time, probably very destructive. Destructive in what way? Oh, like, I remember I had a, um, uh, I had a babysitter who, t who actually, I kid you not, taught me how to build the Molotov cocktail. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, How'd that go over? <laughs> that went, you know, my parents were away, so it, the fire was quickly put out, but it was just, you know, it wasn't, oh we, we didn't destroy anything. It was just you know, a skill that I haven't luckily had to use since then. Fortunately. Um, and, uh, but then there was a lot of, a lot of building and then destroying, I think. It, you know, it was like, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd spend weeks on end making a fort somewhere, and then once it was done, you know, you'd, you'd light it on fire, or you'd just tear it down because... You know, you sort of got bored of that. You know, once it was done, then what? You know, you weren't going to really. There's no fun just sitting in it and hanging out, and you know, you know, it was it was more about the act and and going out somewhere and coming up with a plan of like, you know, I'm going to go, you know, try and dig a, a ten foot tunnel through the ground somewhere, and you know, wow. quickly realizing that, you know, you know, it's very hard to dig a tunnel, you know, six inches into the ground, <laughs> <laughs> ten feet. But uh, yeah, so that was that was sort of. Um, 
how the you know the farm life and my father probably influenced me. Now I read in in your wonderful profile in this month's print magazine that when you were growing up in Canada, you actually planned to join the army. Yes. Really. Yeah. Why? I had I had always wanted to be in the army. Um, the it, Canadian army. No, no, it was the British army. Oh, okay. My father is Scottish, and he was the the third generation or second third second generation of um, Buchanan Smiths who had been part of this small regiment in the northeast of Scotland called the Gordon Highlanders. And it was just this thing that, you know, I grew up in. My father's not an army man by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, but I had sort of, you know, I had cousins who were, who were part of this and uncles and my grandfather. And they all sort of went off to various parts of the world in their kilts and, you know, marched around and did lots of exciting, you know, adventure training and climbing and, you know, skiing, all this sort of thing, and, and it just seemed, you know, as, funnily enough, when I was really young, which was during the time of the, the sort of the height of the, the crisis in Northern Ireland, there was, that was the only thing I wanted to do, was go to Northern Ireland and fight. Really? So, but you did yeah. end up living in Ireland for a while. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah, many years later, but not, okay. in Nor not in Northern Ireland. I lived in the south of Ireland. So what made you decide not to do that? Not to, not to join the army? Mm -hmm. uh, at the last minute, I got cold feet. Um, it had been this, it had purely been a romantic sort of dream of mine, and it was just, it, there, was no, there was no substance to it. It was really just this thing that I, I had lived for, for for so many years, and then I moved to Scotland, and then went through all my tests and slowly started to realize that I just hated it, you know. And, really? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was no way that, you know, I also had a, a, an aunt at the time who, who, who helped to talk me out of it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I, I never did that, obviously. Yeah, I think it's so interesting when you have a picture of what you think your life is going to be like or what you think you should be doing, and then when it's right there in front of you, you suddenly have this realization or epiphany or change of heart that somehow yeah. just doesn't seem to work with the direction that the rest of your exactly. life should go in. Yeah, yeah, when you really have to make that decision. Yeah, I, 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 I've had that happen a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to take a break, okay. unfortunately, but I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is the lovely designer Peter Buchanan-Smith. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Lots more to talk about. Please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Daryl and Reith of Campbell Soup Company, and I'm excited to invite you to the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April in New York City. Join me in discussing the power of research and design as they come together in a strategic huddle to drive the Campbell's Chunky brand into the end zone. Plus, hear from design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philip Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, who will discuss how synergistic strategy and design drive brand innovation, consumer loyalty, and profitability. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. 
Rise to the Challenge. See you in New York City on April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria. Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big-picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the bottom line for business talk voice america business achieve total wealth management listen to three-dimensional wealth with roey diefendorf every monday at 2 p.m pacific 5 eastern on business america radio three-dimensional wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roey Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. It is 318 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer Peter Buchanan-Smith. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Peter, now's the time to call. Our phone lines are open. The number is 1-866-233-7861. So, Peter, before the break, we were talking about your, your background and mm-hmm. almost getting going to the Army and being mm-hmm. influenced by a father who was a professor of animal science. Yeah. Um, well, my mother was also very influential. In what way? Tell us. Well, she was, she was um, uh, an amazing um, uh, fabric Embroiderer. Wow. Um, yeah, she worked wonders with with a thread and needle. And is that what she did for a living? No, she was always a mom, but she did just you know sort of beautiful tapestries for oh. for the, the home and for other you know friends and things. Yeah. So was she your first creative influence? Yes, definitely. So how definitely. did you know? When did you know that you wanted to be a designer? I knew that I really wanted to be a designer. I'd always thought that I wanted to be a publisher of some kind, mm-hmm. and and I had no you know I, until. I left Canada, I'd really no, you know, direct publishing, you know, experience. And so I went to this program, the Radcliffe Publishing Course in, at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And I did that first summer and realized that it was sort of my, my, my mind was open to, uh, at the time, people like, um, you know, the Chip, Chip Kids and Barbara DeWild and, and um, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on, you know, um, Michael Ian Kay. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these people were, were you know, re- they were revolutionizing the cover book jacket world, yes. and that's what I wanted to do: was become a, a book jacket designer. So, I was, so I went to FSG, Farrar, Strauss and Drew. And funnily enough, Rodrigo Corral was working there as a uh, as an assistant to Michael Ian Kay, and then I became an assistant to the head of production. Mm-hmm. So I just started out as a lowly, like sort of production person, and uh, occasionally got a, got a chance to, you know, they would throw me the odd bone, and it could be like a you know, redesign the the back cover of a of a of a book that's just gone out of print or something, or the title page of you know you know uh, uh, 
you know, I don't know, you know, a book of poetry or something. It wasn't, you know, or, or stri- you know, at that time we weren't even working on computers. It was mm-hmm. stripping little pieces of type in and out, and um, and uh, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, we <laughs> talked about when you knew you were going to be a designer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm, uh, yeah, I've already gone past that now. Let's look back. <laughs> so the, well, then, you know, working. So I know I actually I haven't. I mean, at FSG, Forrest Ross and Drew, I, that's when I really realized working in that world, I wanted to be a book jacket designer. And um, I wasn't, it was sort of, there was just too many pe- great people in at, in the, that world. At well, that you were point. there at that perfect moment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it was going to take more than just sort of, I didn't, I was too impatient to sort of sit around and imprent, apprentice with someone for, you know, or, or be someone's assistant for, you know, five or six years or whatever it would take. Um, so then that's when I, I took the big leap and, and, uh, and decided to to join or applied to Steve Heller's um, Masters of Design program at School of Visual Art, which was actually the first. It hadn't been offered until I I joined, so I was one of like ten guinea pigs, that or, or fifteen guinea pigs that started uh, that kicked that that program off. Well, you seem to um, hit the jackpot because obviously your first your graduate thesis was published and turned to, into an award-winning book, the book Spec, A Curious Collection of Uncommon Things. Um, that must have been a rather heady experience for you, a newly minted graduate, to have a, a book. Yeah. Your thesis turned yeah. into a, a, a really successful yeah. book. Yeah, No, I was I was absolutely flabbergasted when I, 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 I took it to, originally I took it to Michael Beirut, uh, and it was supposed to be a journal, a monthly or, or quarterly journal that would just be about the theme, the theme which the theme would always be, uh, about the the everyday, which funny enough, it seems like Found Magazine has sort of like filled that you know that niche, which I'm really thankful for because they do a great job. But I took it to Michael and, and just to get some sense of like how I get paper. And I was thinking of funding all of this myself, and I was like, you know, where can I get paper sponsorship? He said, well, you should just you should take this to Princeton Architectural Press and see what they think, just as far as maybe they'll publish it as a journal. And now, now, you say you just, you know, you took it to Michael, you know, like anybody. You know, no. how, did, what, okay. how did you yeah, get yeah, to no. Michael Beirut? That's, it's a very good, that's a very good question. Um, well, it was all, it was really all through my connections at the master's program, mm-hmm. and um, uh, which is one of the great things about it, is that it, it provided so many uh, wonderful opportunities, uh, and one of which was, you know, um, the connections that all of the all of our instructors had, and and especially the great uh, uh, Steve Heller, and of so course. so Steve was very supportive of, of this project, and you know he was the one who 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 opened the door to Michael for me, um, and so I, I brought this thing to Princeton, and you know with no idea of what a book proposal was, or I just walked into their office with this this prototype. It was my master's thesis. And they they took one look at it and they're like we love this idea but it's not a book and we don't do journals so why don't you come back in a couple of weeks with a book proposal and so I sat down and and you know what that meant really was just to flush out more ideas to really like you know I had my 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 prototype was about 60 pages mm-hmm. and you know for a book you know I really wanted to, this to be something that was you know over 200 pages now for our listeners I'm sitting in front of this magnificent tome tell us tell some of the listeners what the book is about in case they are the not book, familiar with yeah, it yeah the book is simply um it the original the original subtitle that I want or tagline that I wanted was uh the uncommon beauty of common things which is something that that uh Charles Eames had actually uh I, I he it was his quote and um the 
it, that is really what it is in, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. But uh, the actual book itself is, um, that's the theme. The book itself is a, uh, a group of, you know, crazy people who are just make, you know, who've made wonderful things that I either would go to them and say, you know, do you want to go... <clears throat> Go sit on on every single subway line in New York and try draw, and try and draw a straight line, and so I sent someone to do that, and then they came back with all these like wobbly lines, which were sort of like illustrations of the New York, the whole New York City subway system and their journey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or we I, we sent someone off, we sent a blind man off to take to do a photo essay, um, and then that's sort of like the main part of the book, and then there was a, a book within the book, which is this repository in the middle, which is really just collections of. Mm -hmm. Of people's people's thing, weird things, weird and wonderful things that that people collected, um, like cat whiskers or lost animal signs. And my favorite is is the first one, which is by this guy Eddie Simon in Philadelphia, who collected earth, air, and water from all over the world. And the catch here is that he never left really the state of Pennsylvania, but he worked as a barber in close to some colleges in Philadelphia, and. A friend of his, one or, or or one of his clients, came in one one day and brought him the typical you know tacky tourist souvenir from Florida of like you know a bottle of sand from Daytona Beach or whatever. And he put that up on his shelf, and then you know a month later or something, someone else brought in something, and then this this collection, you know, ended up growing into this work of total work of art, you know, uh, that something that even like Marcel Duchamp would be, you know, envious of. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it was it was really like a uh, it was mind blowing. I went to see it. It was all kept in his basement. But he would have, you know, air from Mia Mia, and he would have smog from London. And, oh, that's so you know, beautiful. and it was it was meticulously kept in in all different sorts of vials and bottles. And he would typewrite, you know, the labels for each one, and really, really just sort of mind blowing. Yeah, it's an it's an amazing part of the book. Yeah. Um, Peter, we have a caller, Gregory. Thank oh. you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Peter. Hi. Um, my question is, how is it different um, designing, for example, when you approach designing a book cover um, to approaching dealing with a celebrity like Isaac and, and, and um, conceptually designing for him? How is that different? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think like designing for someone like Isaac, is, it's much more <clears throat> of a relationship and, and, um, and, a, and a very direct and sort of immediate one. Uh, Whereas, and it's sort of like understanding Isaac and, and, and who he personally is, because that's so much of, you know, in his in his case, thankfully, that's so much of his, of what he creates is, is him, and it's and a, and a real genuine outgrowth of, of of him. And I think like a book cover <coughs> is more detached, in, in 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 that it's not like I sit, you know, you ever sit down with the author and t get to talk to them about their why they decided to ever write their book or even you don't even get to really sit down with with the editor who commissioned the book or you know so on and so forth and sometimes not even the art director who's commissioned you to to design it so it's more solitary and and both i think have their you know their their um their benefits do you ever feel gypped somehow by not being able to talk to an author or uh, um an editor yeah, yeah yeah definitely now now i definitely do i mean i don't think that I, i'm not really uh that interested in just the way my career's gone. I'm not as interested in, in doing book jackets and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm really I really thrive for that uh, that one-on-one -on -one contact because I think that 
it is it just creates it just yields a better much better product in in the end and it's so you know life is so much more interesting to to have that sort of to be in in um it really in the mix with everyone you know from the author to the to the, to Isaac or to whoever it is that is is behind this thing you, you sort of it's it's a great thing to aspire to to be part of that right thank you peter yeah thanks thanks debbie thank you for calling gregory I, I mean, I always find that the very best relationships with clients are wherein you can get into their head, wherein you can Definitely. live their life, see the world from their eyes, and yeah. then open their eyes to maybe a new way of seeing what they have in front of them. Yeah, exactly. And I find it very exactly. difficult to work in any in any discipline where you're not interacting really deeply with the client that you're working with, yeah. On, no matter what, no matter what yeah. platform it is, whether it's yeah. packaging or book jacket, it's like being married and like you know, it's like a long distance relationship. Otherwise, you know, it's so great to have that, you know, to be right there next to each other. Yeah, going I mean, through I think it's it the trust. It's the yeah. trust that, that you're yeah. able to to share together. And, and having a having a client or or whoever you're working for, who really wants that, is such a great and positive sign because it means that they. They value design enough that they want to be there with you, and they want they want you, you know. They're not they're not just sort of, you know. It's not like um, you know, your mechanic or something where you just right. drop your car off. You know, right. it's like you don't just drop your manuscript off. You know, you want you, they want they want you. They want you to be a part of that. Yeah, I think that whenever <coughs> a client considers you a, a vendor and calls you as such, yeah. that you know yeah. that this isn't necessarily no, exactly. the. the you know, dream relationship exactly. that you're going to be able to create, you know, masterful work, yeah. masterful work for. Well, it's time for another break. Okay. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the designer, Peter Buchanan-Smith. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder-Lindbergh from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. Fuse is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention design and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in, in April. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding a business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 
You work hard, and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune into Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. From the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the designer Peter Buchanan-Smith. So, Peter, mm. before the break, we were talking a little bit about your history, and I want to sort of move forward okay. in time now. Okay. Talk a little bit about the work that you and your partner did, your partner at the time, did with Wilco and yeah. your Grammy Award. Um, tell us about that experience. What was it like working with Wilco? Did, well, you, did you feel like this was magic in the making? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very... That, again, was like another sort of like Isaac story where we approached them, although I'd never approached Isaac, but it was that sort of connection where uh, my business partner at the time, Dan Nadell, and I <coughs> ran a company called Picture Box, and uh, we approached Wilco because they were one of our favorite bands, and we felt that, that you know, at the time, they're... they're, they're the visuals that they had circulating in the world were not really doing them justice. So, so when you say you approached Wilco, you actually found the people of Wilco, or you approached we, the we, record company? We had a connection. A friend of ours had a connection to the record company. Mm -hmm. So we sent him sort of like spec and the Gonsfeld, which is this other project we did, everything that we had done together, and sent that to uh, the record company, saying, can you get us in touch with Wilco, and here's this idea. We want to do a book, a visual book about their music. And <clears throat> they sent it to the Wilco management, and... Sure enough, eventually they got back to us, and we're really excited about the idea. And um, it's something that, you know, really I don't think many bands would ever respond to you with something in regards to this. Yeah, you said, sure enough, like, <coughs> I'm going to send something yeah. to, you know, Mick Jagger. Let's see how long it takes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Don't hold your breath, <laughs> designers out there to try that. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, I think that because, I guess the lesson, one last great lesson is that is that we love them so much and our you know, it was very genuine, and, and, and so was our approach. You know, we weren't like, you know, we are design packagers. We will package you. We will make this best-selling book. It was just like we're a bunch of fans who happen to be, you know, design stuff, and what do you think? And, and so they came back to us and, and loved it, and we started working on this book project. And during the course of that, they were recording an album, which called A Ghost is Born, which we documented in the, um, the making of this album in this book that we made. 
and they asked us if we would be interested in designing their their CD. And of course, you know, we said yes, and um, uh, that was that's sort of how that got started. Mm-hmm. Were uh, you surprised when you heard about the Grammy nomination? Shock, oh, yeah, shocked. I mean, first of all, I, n- I didn't even know that they gave Grammys to designers, and mm. and we got a call in in like September. Uh, I guess it would have been 2005, 2004, mm-hmm. uh, by Wilco's publicist saying, you know, do you realize that you've just been nominated for a Grammy? And I think that, uh, you know, I think that we thought it was a joke at first. You know, it was a prank call or something. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, sure enough, it was obviously true. And, and then, you know, we went to L.A. and, you know, we, you know, we didn't even prepare a speech. We, we were that set on the fact that we were not going to win. And, that, that, and then it just, you know, we ended up winning and we sort of, you know, looked at each other and walked on stage and really had nothing to say. <laughs> now, were you part you of know, the televised? Because I don't remember. We actually, we were on the, the no, we weren't, but we we ended up being, they, they show clips of the people, they have two ceremonies, one right. which is earlier, which is not televised, and that's where the majority of the awards are given out. There's about 100 awards that are given there, and then there's like 12 that are given the, on the televised one, but... You know, so I heard that they, they, we were on the screen on the televised one where they showed like a clip of uh-huh. like, you know, here are the designers. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it seems to me that you have a fascination with the egg. Yeah. yeah um, it's yeah. prominently featured in the design of the yeah. CD. It's one of the subjects of spec. Yeah. Um, you open the you open with the index from the egg and egg dishes section of Julia Child's cookbook, The Joy of Cooking. Yeah. So what's with the egg? Well. It's pretty simple. I had a class with Paolo Antonelli, who's the curator of the Museum of Modern Art, when I was doing my master's at School of Visual Art. And I remember her saying, I don't know what the context was, but she said one day that the egg is the greatest design object. And I never forgot that. And um, it seemed to me when when it came time to making spec that, that... that was the perfect way to start this book because it's the most humble thing, but at the same time, it's the most complex. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I love that you, you see the egg when you open up spec and then you turn the page and then you have the complex, it's the simple egg and then you turn the page and you have this list of, of the, um, from the table of contents of the joy of cooking with all of the egg recipes, which is like 40 or 50 of them. You know, if you think about it, think of everything you can do with an egg. You can fry it, you can scramble it, you can poach it. That's Put it in your hair. Put it in your hair. That's yeah. That's you know. That's the start. And then you can, you know, you can make paint with it. You can. Um, uh, what else can you do? Cookies with make meringue. Cookies. You, know, you can make Easter eggs. You can paint them. You can, you know. And they're also the most. They they they're so fragile, but they're so resilient. I mean, if you try like crushing an egg on its ends with your hands, it's impossible. Um, so it's sort of a fascinating object. And also, what comes out of it? I mean, you also. You you incubate it and this chicken com- you know a chicken comes out of it, um, so it's sort of like miraculous in that sense too. Um, that from you know from this yolk comes this this live animal. Wonderful. Yeah. We have another caller. Oh wow. um, Which I feel we should take because okay. he's been waiting on the line actually for a rather long time. Okay. I didn't even realize it. Andrew from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I wanted to get back to the um, the Wilco cover because that sounds like one of the coolest stories in the world to to love a band and then get to work with them on something and then yeah. have them ask you to do something else yeah. um i guess two questions is that something that normally happens to you and also <laughs> it seems to be i'll answer that question for him uh, um you know if you we're talking like i have really only been a designer for 
if you count like the day I left SVA for four years, and so it, it's not like these things. My luck may have run out, you know. After, and I think with regards to like Wilco or something, that's probably it. Probably has, and and I've tried I've tried working with a couple other bands, and um, it doesn't since I left my partnership with with uh, at Picturebox, and it doesn't really. Maybe I'm just going in a different direction or whatever, but it doesn't seem like that that luck is not there right now, which is fine. But you know, I, I I just think it's one of these things where if if you're really really passionate, if you're a Keith Richards fan and you love Keith Richards enough, I think I wouldn't doubt that you'd be able to get to him someday or so, or somehow or some way, you know. And I think that you just have to have, you know, having people and knowing people is having connections and 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 that have obviously helped me. I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be a, you know, a liar to say that these things just sort of, you know, you know, I'm lucky and it just, it's just all, you know, depends on luck. It's just, you know, pursuing and being, you know, really, um, you know, genuine and 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 passionate and and um, persistent. You well, know? I think confidence also has a lot to do with it. You know, it yeah. never ever occurred to me, given my long term. Like head over heels, knock kneed love affair with Joni Mitchell. To yeah. ever try and contact her to do design work for her, never in a million years. Yeah. But I think it's it's not in it's it, it never was in my frame of reference. Yeah. I think that if you have an expectation that if you want to do something that you could end up doing it, yeah. I think that's half the battle. I mean, yeah. I think that's an extraordinary way of looking at life. Yeah. But yeah. it takes it takes confidence and a belief in yourself, and also a belief in that the work that you're providing actually is going to provide value and is going to be very good. Yeah, exactly. It's a deep, you it's know, like deep. Self-esteem issue here. It's like with, 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 with everyone that I, I work with, who I who I adore and respect. It's not. I never. You never. You never really like. You never. Even though you are a fan, your fandom has to be completely kept at the door. You know, once you get in and you start working with someone. I mean, it's really important to be to to know that you know why you're there and what why what you you know to offer your best to them and what you and what you can really give them. So. Um Andrew, did you have your question answered? Yes. I also wanted to know if there was something else that she would have to do that. If, if there was one other thing that she would have the opportunity to approach, what would it be? Oh, like another project? Yeah. With music or? Anything. Anything? Mm-hmm. Um, While he's thinking, I'll also tell you that he just recently redesigned uh, the reissue. And it's not really a redesign. He, he did the design for the reissue of My Life in the Bush of Ghosts for David Byrne and Brian Eno. So yeah. and oh. another like you know, killer yeah. client. Yeah, but that but that was also through Wilco's record company. So I did a you know I did a good job on on Ghost Is Born, and that led one thing leads to another. But you know my ultimate my ultimate ultimate dream project, and if I had time right now, I think I would be trying to pursue it because these guys are not going to be alive for very much longer. This is going to sound totally ridiculous, but is to do a book about ACDC. Oh yeah, a smart a smart book for smart people about that band because I think that they're so. I don't know. I'm just like maybe I'm just deluded, but I feel like there's so much depth to that, to that music and what they their influence in the world and um, in their sort of you know their their music. It's just you know spectacular and I don't know. That sounds that may sound really lame, but yeah, no, <laughs> see, I have them as my ringtone. Oh, you do? <laughs> yep, understood. <laughs> thank you for calling, Andrew. We're gonna try and take one more caller in before the break. Francis from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Um, my question is uh, for Peter. I was wondering, um, going back to what you were saying through your connections through your teachers at the SVA master's program and being yeah. 
also um, new out of the program also. I was wondering, I understand you also teach now, and I was wondering how teaching has impacted your career, if at all, as a designer, and what advice you have to give to students in school or just recently graduated. Uh, um, that's a good question. <clears throat> my, my advice, which I is to students, is really simple, and no one, I mean, not no one, I mean, it's, it's the hardest thing to get, but it's so easy. It's just work hard. It's like all you can do is work hard. And, and no matter who you are, you will do great things if you work hard. That's really, you know, work hard, as hard as you ever have. And especially learn as much as you can, yeah. constantly, about everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all you can do. Not just I design. Mean, yeah, yeah. It's just work and work and work. And, and, and the more you, if you set your, if you, if you, the harder you work, you're going to, the great thing about it is that you're all of a sudden going to wake up one day and realize why you love design so much. And it's not going to be work anymore, but you're just going to be doing this thing just out of, out of um, like some driven like madman, you know. I mean, you're not really. It's not. It's not going to be, you know, even seem like work. And that's what you sort of have to aspire to. But um, teach, uh, teaching has, has been, you know, a great thing for me. And in, in, um, in that I've, you know, been able to really apply ideas that that w would never, that would never, you know, in an abstract sense, make it in in the real world. You know, like a one of the assignments I give my students is to. Um, Design flyers, and they put up. Each of them has to put up a thousand flyers around the city and, and get calls, and that's it. Um, but it's totally impractical, but at the same time, a great experiment. I guess that's what it is. They're all experiments, and 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 I love experimenting like that. Well, thank you for calling, Francis. Thank you. When thank we you. come back from our break, I actually want to talk to you about one of the stickers that you put up all over the city. Oh yeah. Many years ago, your missing yeah. God sticker. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back in just a few moments with Peter's story about that. Please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Alexander Isley. I'm a designer, and I'd like to welcome you to the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April at the Waldorf Astoria. Your host, the wonderful Debbie Millman, will be there too. This year's event is shaping up to have the biggest turnout in its history. Don't miss out on this event, which integrates marketing, design, research, and production issues. You'll learn from more than 60 design and marketing leaders about past success and pitfalls to avoid. Join Coca-Cola, GE Healthcare, Black & Decker, Target, Pentagram, The Home Depot, Frito-Lay, Johnson & Johnson. Go in-depth on the topics most important to you. Enjoy candid conversations, catch up with old friends, and meet new colleagues. Take advantage of the opportunities available, including sessions on how to capture the global market through discussions on globalization and what it means for your brand. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.com. IIRUSA.com slash BIPD or email register at IIRUSA.com. Mention Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Looking forward to seeing you April 24th in New York City. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of the global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. 
embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time right here on the Bottom Line Business Talk, Voice America Business. Learn to thrive, not just survive in business and careers. Unleash your full potential and greatness with the Thrive Factor, unleashing your potential. With tactical coaches and success masters, hosts Dory Willer and Eva Gregory. Dory, Eva, and their masters of thriving, expert guests, inform, educate, elucidate, and inspire with leading-edge information. The Thrive Factor, unleashing your potential. With Dory Willer and Eva Gregory, broadcast each Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. The Thrive Factor, success and inspiration at the click of a mouse. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.48 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melvin, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Melvin, and my guest today is the designer, Peter Buchanan-Smith. Before the break, we were talking about some work that Peter was doing as a student, and I wanted to ask you about your Missing God sticker. Oh, yeah, yeah, Can you yeah. tell us about yeah. your Missing God sticker? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, a project I did when I was at uh, School of Visual Art, and um, it was an assignment for a class that Stephen Guarnaccia, the illustrator and, and now um, head of the Parsons Illustration Department, taught us. And uh, it, was, it was part of an exhibit called The Missing Link, which just sort of that was it, and we sort of explored this mysterious theme of a missing link. And my missing link I chose was God, and and not in that he's been like a missing link in my life or anything, but um, just the just God and that sort of whole concept. And well, you say he was hasn't been a missing link in your life. Do you believe in God? Uh, mm, that's a great question. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Stephen. Like, Stephen Zagmeister, if you believe what, it was, what his definition of love was, I've got well, you. believe well, in God. Uh, I believe in in some sort of force. I don't know if it's God or I believe there could be some something. Uh, you know, I know that's not really a great answer. Yeah, but so it's your answer. It's yeah. fine. So all right, back to the yeah, missing yeah. God stickers. Uh, the missing God. Yeah. So I put up uh, uh, about four or five thousand stickers around the city that just said. Uh, if you know the whereabouts of God, please call this number. And then it had an anonymous mailbox number. And so I started putting them up, and um, I got uh, hundreds of calls. And it's I tell you, its that's the, one of the reasons I, I give a similar assignment to my students like this is just because you, it, it engages you with, with design and, and your audience more than you'll ever sometimes experience in your life. To have someone calling you about a flyer or a sticker that you've put up calling your phone number and telling you that they want to, like, rip your head off and slice up your mother or something like that. Oh, my God. It's just, you know, it's pretty it's pretty, pretty disturbing. And you're <laughs> like, oh, my, this is what I can do with design. Yes. You know, it's like this is the sort of response. I can, like, push buttons and I can get responses from people. And, you know, that's one nice thing is just to be able to hear, you know, what someone thinks about what you've done on the street, you know, and... Um, I got a lot of that sort of thing. A lot of really beautiful things too. I was like, going to say, know, like, is like there people, anything poignant? Yeah, yeah. It's a, like, such a big question. Yeah, yeah. Like people, uh, you know, sort of would call in and, and, and have whole songs written, uh, you know, in response to the sticker, and would would play like a five-minute song on the message, or 
you know, would ask me questions in return or, you know, um, and then the ones of like the, the sort of like the crazy person who was calling as like Andre Agassi's personal assistant and asking where Andre was, you know, and that sort of thing. It's just like, <laughs> or the lady who called to say that her, pl- her sink was broken, you know, and that was it, you know, it's sort of really, you know, very comic moments too. Yeah. Um, last year you started working at Paper Magazine. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about what that's like for you. Oh, Paper is, um, is it's like my long lost home, you know, and, and, and these all, everyone there, like my family, and, and, and the job has become this sort of um, an outgrowth of that, and uh, it's very interesting working in a magazine like Paper. First of all, it's, it's interesting working in a magazine. I'd, I'd only interned, I'd, I'd interned my first job in New York before I first Strauss and Drew was as an, as an intern at Men's Journal, and I did that for about a month, and then I worked at the New York Times Magazine before I went to the New York Times op-ed page for four weeks. And so, but I, I think, like, coming to something like, you know, going to paper with no magazine experience or working for Isaac Mizrahi with no fashion experience, sometimes some of the best, you know, it's so, so refreshing for, for both of us. For, now, um, the, with, with Isaac, did you meet Isaac via your relationship with Myra Kelman? Through, through Myra, it was a sort of trifecta of, like, Myra and, and paper, or, or bifecta, or, or <laughs> of Myra and Paper, and uh, Kim Hastrader, who's the publisher of Paper, mm-hmm. is is very close with with Isaac, and so is Myra. And Myra Kalman was my thesis advisor when I was at School of Visual Art, and so that's you know, and I'd met Isaac through through both of them, sort mm-hmm. of. And you also studied under Tibor Kalman, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I took the only class that that Tibor uh, ever taught. It was one class, and and he. He died uh, three quarters of the way through the class, and um, it was an incredible, incredible experience. Uh, he basically walked into the first class and put up a slide on the wall, and we sat there in silence looking at it for three hours, just not saying a word, looking at the slide. And then he said, he just turned to us and he said, next week bring in another slide that you, you can put next to this one. And so we did that, and then the next week after that, we talk, you know. Then we'd start talking about what that mm-hmm. slide. What happens when you put one picture next to another? And then after that, it was the next week was four, and the next week it was eight, until finally we had about a sort of like a fifty or sixty page book of all these images that just started with that one. Now, in that three hours, did people try to talk? Did they know that they <laughs> shouldn't talk? Were I they th- was th- it like a John Cage he piece was, of pe- you know music? He, or? No, there was nothing. It was it was sort of like you know. You know, Tibor's dog Pete scratching himself was really the only. And no one interjected, tried to start. No, Tibor. Tibor was, you know, as as I think most people tell you, and this is the only time I, I ever knew him, and I've heard that he was a very intimidating uh, character, and he certainly was. You know, if you you know that on top of the fact that he was very ill, I mean, people who are sick are intimidating, and um, you know that was it was it was hard, but he was a very, you know. You know, he's a very generous, light-hearted guy when it came down to it, um, and to teaching. You know, he's a great teacher. And so you worked with Myra Kelman mm-hmm. on the Elements of Style, yeah. the, the marvelous book that came out last year. Yeah. Uh, the redesign of E.B. White's famous Elements of Style. E.B. White and, and William Strunk. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Strunk and White. Yeah. Um, First time it's ever really been looked at in this way. Oh, so, yeah, so tell yeah. us about that experience. Um, that was uh, that was uh, uh, again a, a wonderful, very very hard, you know, experience. In that there was it's a, it's a book that 
really doesn't have any design to it, but yet it sort of the design had to be invisible, you know, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It really, I, I, you know, I had to try so hard to not to leave my mark and or to do what I wanted to do, but not actually have it even show, you know, just to have it be this thing that that was going to be, you know, a beautiful complement to to the book itself first and foremost, and then to Myra's, you know, artwork, mm-hmm. and. That was that was a um, a real watershed experience in my life. And in I feel, what way? Um, just knowing that that you don't have to be the big you know cheese like designer. You don't have to have like your mark everywhere. I mean, it's like making a making a beautiful thing can be virtually anonymous, you know. And it's it's sort it's that's sort of like the you know the hardest thing to do. And I think if people if you can get there, it. it I feel like you you end up having achieved something greater and grander than than ever you know doing something that's got your your name and your your mark impression all over it. Well, you thank know? you, Peter. That's that's really beautiful and very inspiring. And yeah. unfortunately, we're about to close the show, um, so I'm going to end with our no no thank no. you for having me. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. But we honor. do have one last little exercise I put my guests okay. through, which is the Q and A, the okay. pop culture quiz. I ask you quick questions. First thing that comes to your mind. I'm just going to ask you okay, three okay. because we're running out of time. So it's just like sort of association. Yeah. Okay. Who is your favorite superhero? Uh, Batman. Um, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? Um, oh God, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> the most dangerous thing I've ever done was uh, tell a, a, when a cop handed me my ticket to be arrested. I signed it Donald Duck. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and what is your least favorite word? Uh, oh, I know I have that somewhere. Um, synergy. <laughs> Very good. That's great. Well, we've come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank you, Peter. You've been magnificent. Thank you so much. I'd like to give a special thanks to our new sponsors, Adobe and Nina Paper. I'd also like to thank Brian Travis and Rupa Colomb at Voice America, my wonderful staff and my wonderful partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week is the brilliant Art Chantry. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Melman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.